Section 17 of Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Beachy Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems by Harriet Beecher Stowe. THE TOLERANCE OF JESUS We saw one casting out devils, and he followed not us, and we forbade him. And Jesus said, Forbid him not. There is nothing in which our Lord so far exceeds all his followers as in that spirit of forbearance and tolerance which he showed toward every effort, however imperfect, which was dictated by a sincere heart. Human virtue, as it grows intense, is liable to grow narrow and stringent, but divine love has an infinite wideness of allowance. We are told of the first triumphant zeal of the twelve apostles when, endued with miraculous power, they went forth healing the sick, casting out devils, and preaching the good news of the kingdom to the poor. They came back to Jesus exulting in their new success. And we are told they said unto him, Lord, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed not us. Jesus said unto them, Forbid him not, for there is no man that will do a miracle in my name, that will lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our side. Here our Lord recognizes the principle that those who seek what he is seeking and are striving to do what he is doing, are in fact on his side, even although they may not see their way clear to follow the banner of his commissioned apostles and work in their company. Christ's mission, as he defined it, was a mission of healing and saving, a mission of consolation and the relief of human misery. And this man who was trying to cast out the devils in his name was doing his work and moving in his line, although not among his professed disciples. Jesus also recognized the many sheep not of this fold which he had in this world, people who were his followers by unity of intention with what he intended, though they might never have known him personally. He tells the Jews who believed in a narrow and peculiar church that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And in his pictures of the last judgment, he makes the final award turn on the simple unity of spirit and purpose with him in his great work of mercy for mankind. We see intimated that the accepted ones are amazed to find themselves recognized as having shown personal regard to Christ, and say, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, or athirst, or in prison, and ministered to thee? And the reply is, Inasmuch as ye did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. A more solemn declaration cannot be given, that our Lord accepts the spirit which is in unison with his great work of mercy for mankind, as the best offering of love to himself. 
and in this sense it is true that no man who would seek to do miracles of mercy in his spirit could lightly speak evil of him. In this case, our Lord might have seen that the arrogant dictatorial temper which has come upon his followers in the flush of their first success might have disgusted and repelled a sincere man who was really trying to help on the good work in which Christ was engaged. And perhaps he may now see, as he looks down among our churches here and there, some good man in his own peculiar way seeking to do the work of the Lord, yet repelled from following in the train of his professed disciples. Instead of forbidding such because they follow not us, he would have us draw them toward us by sympathy in the good they are doing, trusting in our Lord to enlighten them wherever they may need more distinct light. The Protestant must not forbid the Romanist mission whose plain object seems to be to call sinners to repentance and to lead professing Christians to a higher and holier life. Nor must the Romanist in the pride of ancient authority forbid the Protestant evangelist that is seeking to make known the love of Jesus. And there are men in our times of pure natures and of real love for mankind whose faith in divine revelation is shaken, who no longer dare to say they believe with the orthodox, but who yet are faithfully striving to do good to man, to heal the sick and cast out the devils that afflict society. Sad-hearted men are they often, working without the cheer that inspires the undoubting believer, often under a sense of the ban of the professed followers of Christ. Yet the infinite tolerance of our Lord is leading them as well as those who more formally bear his name. It was Cyrus the Persian king who worshipped the Zoroastrian gods that is called in the prophecy God's shepherd, to whom God says, Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Let us hope that there are many whose right hand Christ is holding, though they as yet know him not. For he it is who says, I will bring the blind by a way they know not. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. It pleased our Lord to number among the twelve apostles one of those natures which are constitutionally cautious and skeptical. Thomas had a doubting head but a loving heart. He clung to Christ by affinity of spirit and personal love, with a slow and doubting intellect. Whether Jesus were the Messiah, the King of Israel, destined to reign and conquer, Thomas, though sometimes hoping, was somewhat prone to doubt. He was all the while foreboding that Christ would be vanquished, while yet determined to stand by him to the last. When Christ announced his purpose to go again into Judea, where his life had been threatened, Thomas says, and there seems to be a despairing sigh in the very words, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The words seem to say, This man may be mistaken after all, but living or dying, I must love him, and if he dies, I die too. Well, the true-hearted doubter lived to see his Lord die, 
and he it was of all the apostles who refused to believe the glad news of the resurrection. No messenger, no testimony, nothing that anybody else had seen could convince him. He must put his own hand into the print of the nails, or he will not believe. The gracious master did not refuse the test. Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hand, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing, he said. And the doubter fell at his feet and cried, My Lord and my God. There was but a gentle word of reproof. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. It is this divine wideness of spirit, this tolerance of love, that is the most characteristic element in the stages which mark the higher Christian life. Such spirits as Fenelon, Francis de Sales, John Woolman, and the Apostle Eliot seem to have risen to the calm regions of clear-sighted love. Hence the maxim of Fenelon, only perfection can tolerate the imperfect but we, in our way to those regions, must lay down our harsh judgments of others. We must widen our charity, and as we bless our good shepherd for his patience with our wanderings and failures, must learn to have patience with those of our neighbors. End of section 17